All right, everybody, good morning. Morning, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Seacoast. Good, come on, yeah. Hey, if we haven't met, my name is Dominic, one of the pastors here. Excited to be with you. Our lead pastor's on sabbatical, so we get to do whatever we want today. You guys ready? We're painting buildings, we're tearing stuff down. We're not doing any of that. But if you have a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 4. What I am excited about today is that we are uh, continuing back in our book of uh, John study. And we started that in the new year. We took a break during post-Easter to do a series called Messy Faith, but we're picking back up for the next couple months. So if you have a Bible, pixel, paper, you can turn to John chapter 4. And I encourage you to go back if you're new with us or if you've been with us for a while to go back and watch all those messages. There's some great content on there. not just because I was teaching as well, but there was some good content in there. Um, but I want to give you a recap this morning, just if you haven't been with us, or just as a refresher of the book of John, the purpose of it, and where we've been, and then we'll land on where we're at with John chapter 4 today. So John is written, and it's written for the ex- this explicit purpose of helping people know that Jesus is the Messiah, and that they could find life in his name. That Jesus is the Messiah, you can find life in his name. And there's an account, uh, we're going to see seven miracles or signs in this book in the first 12 chapters that Jesus performs. And it's not the sum total of everything he did in his teaching ministry. And John will write in chapter 21 that he says that if I were to document everything that Jesus did, I presume that the books of the world couldn't hold the content. There's not enough space or paper or libraries to hold everything that Jesus did. So there's an intent purpose of documenting what he did do so that you would know that he's a Messiah and find life in his name. And in the first four chapters, it starts with kind of a genesis. It says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then that this Word, there was life in him, and the life that was in him was light for all of men. And we see that this Word who is active in creation, not a created being, but a creator, subjects himself to hang out with creation by taking on flesh and tabernacling, literally setting up shop, a tent, to be with his creation. And there's no one like this word. He's altogether different. He's the only begotten of the Father. And he comes in grace and truth to come and clarify and display the kingdom, and God's heart and intent towards his creation. And we see this uncreated being become fully God, fully man in the person of Jesus. And there's others like him doing miraculous signs and and growing followers and followership and influencers of the community. And one that we see is John the Baptist, not the author of John, but a different John, John the Baptist, and he's an interesting character, but he's amassing people with this message of repent and be baptized. And all the people who have been long awaiting for this Messiah for centuries now see John's influence and impact and go, are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Are you the long-awaited one that we've been hoping for, longing for, to rule and reign and make things right? And John says, it's not me. He says, I'm just a forerunner for the one who's going to come, and I'm just saying, prepare the way for the king. 
Repent, be baptized. He's coming. Do you know him? Do you know him? Do you know him? There he is. It's Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's the one we've been waiting for. And I'm not even worthy to take off his dirty sandals. Do you know him? There he is. He baptizes Jesus, and then Jesus begins his public ministry. And in this ministry, he invites people along to come and follow him. And who he chooses is not the cream of the crop, the royal officials or the beautiful people. He actually chooses the dejected, the outcast, the pariahs of society to come and follow him, to walk with him and work with him and watch how he does it. This kingdom living, walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. And as he clarifies God's heart and God's plan, they see that Jesus is an altogether different rabbi. There's an excitement to follow Jesus because they've been selected to come and follow a rabbi, but they don't quite know what they've signed up for. And as they see this Jesus teaching and ministering to people and clarifying God's law and heart, they see that his heart is for the unlovely and the dejected, and the outcasts, and the ones that are easy to pass by and look the other way. That seems to be the people that Jesus runs towards. And they take note as they walk with him and work with him and watch how he does it. They see Jesus do miraculous signs. The first documented is Jesus turning water into wine. 30 gallons of water into the best wine that the, the wedding has tasted. Jesus is a partier in the best sense possible. He knows how to be the life of the party and see a need so small and minuscule, but takes notice because he sees people. And he sees a need and he brings the best to a situation. And as he sees people, the disciples see that not only does he see the unlovely, the people that would be passed by, the unlovable, but he sees what people think. He knows the heart and motive of people before they utter a word. Which is why in chapter 2 that you see that there's a, a growing fame and popularity coming towards Jesus' way. What John's account doesn't can, uh, keep into account where Matthew, Mark, and Luke do is that there's crowds growing. There's almost a fever pitch from the other gospel writers that his crowds are growing, crowds are growing, masses are coming. It's quite the spectacle. And the crowds that are coming to him are uh, kind of interesting. It's not the beautiful people. It's not the prestigious people. It's not the most intellectual people. They're below status. Mark's account says that Jesus' teaching ministry starts being relegated to him teaching in a boat on the water because he's being fearful of being crushed by the crowds. In towns of maybe 50 to 100 people, there's now thousands amassing to come and see this Jesus of Nazareth. And the crowds that are coming are the sick, the diseased, the impoverished, the possessed, it's quite a weird scene. It's kind of scary when I think about it. It's like World War Z and everyone's just going, ah, Jesus, save us. Jesus is healing and saving, casting out demons. Shut up, demon. 
He's doing these miraculous signs. And he becomes a polarizing figure to people as his ministry grows and as his fame grows. And in chapter 2, you see these people believing in him because of his fame, but not believing in him because he's the Christ, the Messiah. They're here for the show. They're here for the spectacle. They want to see more things happen. Look at that lame man walk. Look at that blind man see. That's quite the spectacle. And Jesus fundamentally rejects fame because he sees people and he sees what's in their hearts and says, you only believe for the show. You don't believe in me as a son of God. I reject that fame. And as a polarizing figure, we see that he's a teacher of teachers. Namely, in one account in chapter 3, we see that Jesus sits with Nicodemus, the teacher of teachers, and schools the teacher of teachers on God's heart and law. And in that one conversation, we see that God's heart is one not of condemnation, but one of love. And that his will is that none would perish, but all would come to a saving knowledge of him through belief that he is the Messiah. Belief in what will ultimately be the sacrifice of Jesus, the final payment that pays for the wrath of God with the open invitation to all people for all time to come and believe, receive, and have life. And he clarifies that this salvation is not from your works, your pedigree, or your heritage. It's purely an act of repenting and believing in the Son and receiving that which is a gift so that none could boast, as Paul would later write. And in this gift, it's the Spirit who moves like the wind that no one can dictate or predict where it happens, but through the Spirit, new birth comes and salvation comes. And as Jesus continues to walk with his motley crew of disciples, the island of misfit toys, as his fame grows and spreads, he continues to show just how far God's love will reach. What was a message that was presumed to just be for the Jew is now for Jew and Gentile alike which is a mind-blowing thing. And Jesus blows their mind in chapter 4 where we left off in Easter that he goes to Samaria, not some area, but Samaria. <laughs> it's a place that a good Jew would strategically avoid. They would walk around to get to Judea. So if Jesus is doing ministry up here, a good Jew would walk around Samaria in the middle and get to Judea. Because that's a people group you don't connect with. That's a people group that you have uh, no community with. And Jesus says, that's exactly where I want to go. That's exactly why I'm here. That's exactly to express the kingdom living. Walk with me, work with me, watch how I do it right here. And not only does he take his boys into Samaria, he sits at a well and has an encounter with a woman. A Samaritan woman, which would be a big no-no. And not only a Samaritan woman, but a woman of questionable character. 
It's an unthinkable act for a rabbi to even have a conversation or find himself sitting at the peak of day with this woman. And yet here's the rabbi Jesus seeing this woman, hearing this woman, knowing this woman. So much so that he tells her everything about her life. As she gets into a theological discussion with him, he turns it to a heart discussion. And he offers this woman living water and that you'll never thirst again. To which she says, no way. I just met with this man and he sees who I am and he knows everything about me. He knows everything I've done. He knows that the man that I'm with is not my husband and neither were the previous five. He knows everything about me and yet he offers living water. No way. And she runs through her town and becomes the biggest evangelist. See, I've met this man. He saw me. He knows me. He offers me water. He's told me everything I've done. Come and see who he is. Could it be that he is the Christ? Could it be he's the one that we've longed for and groaned for and waited for? Could it be him? And in chapter 4, verse 39, if you have the text, here's where the narrative continues. Verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of that woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed for two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. Verse 42, and they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. No fanfare, no miracle, water to wine, no healing of people. Simply a testimony of an unloved, woman of questionable character being seen and invited into the presence of the rabbi who comes to think and question there's something unique and distinct about this Jesus. Could it be that he's the Christ? And from her testimony, a two-day extended stay in Samaria with Jesus and his disciples, Jesus now teaches and listens and sees people and people come to belief, a right belief as opposed to the people in chapter 2 who just want the spectacle. They come to belief simply by just being with him. And the authority in his words and how he says it and how he sees them causes belief to not just believe he's a good man, not to believe that he's a good teacher, but that he's a savior of the world. And after this two-day stay, our context Our text continues in verse 43. Read with me. After the two days, he leaves for Galilee. And now Jesus himself had pointed out that no prophet has honor in his home country. Jesus is from Nazareth. And Galilee is the big region. And Nazareth is one of the regions within Galilee. And there's a saying and expression about Nazareth, which is, can anything good come from Nazareth? Here's this rabbi from this obscure place now coming back to teach. And this is a controversial text, actually, for many people. Some say this discounts everything about Jesus because it says he's not received, but then the next verse says they welcome him in. 
And I think simply the way to address that is this, is that Jesus is not received with honor when he's received back in Galilee. He is welcome because they want to see the show. Who doesn't want to see the lame rise and the sick be healed? There's belief in the miracle, but not in him as the son of God, which is the intended purpose. So when he arrives in Galilee, verse 45, the Galileans welcome him because they had all seen what he had done in Jerusalem, again, chapter 2, at the Passover feast. For they had also been there. In verse 46, once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned water into wine, and there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick in Capernaum. Sea of Galilee, northwest region, beautiful shore town, beach city, called Capernaum. 25 miles away, Canaan, where Jesus is at. And a royal official comes to meet with Jesus, to have a divine encounter with this rabbi. At first pass, when we read it, there's nothing very uh, substantial that steps out except for verse 47. When this man has heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, He went on and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Everybody say begged. Begged. Try it again. Come on. Begged. I'm begging you. Say it. Begging. Yeah. I'm begging you. This royal official from Capernaum goes on a 25-mile journey to meet Jesus who he's heard about. Everybody say, ooh. Big deal, right? It's such an easy verse to read past. What else? Let's get to the fun part. He heals him. Spoiler alert. It's a huge deal that this royal official would leave his post, would leave his son on his deathbed to travel 25 miles to go meet this obscure rabbi from Nazareth in hopes that he would heal his son. And he doesn't ask, he begs this rabbi. See, it's a scandalous encounter for several reasons. One is that he's a royal official, which means he likely works for King Herod, and though not a king himself, is treated as royalty. He's essentially a functional king. He has every accoutrement of life. He has access to everything relationally and financially. He's got power, prestige that likely took him a long time to climb that ladder to get to the position where he's at. And his son is so sick that he would leave his son. That's an unthinkable act. I'll say more about that in a moment. But he has every resource at his hands. He's not struggling. Which means he sought out every doctor, every functional medicine doctor, every nutritionist, Every plan that he could come up with to try and bring health to his beloved son. And to no avail. And he could simply say, servants, go find out about this Jesus who I've heard about. His growing fame and popularity. I hear he heals the sick, the dead, the diseased, the demon possessed. Go bring him to me. 
He's a man of authority. No shortage of resources to go after, but he doesn't do that. He could also exercise his authority and say, bring that Jesus to me. No shortage of power, but he doesn't do that. He himself leaves and goes and begs. He's not in the business of begging anyone at this point in life. As he walks around town, people would go, that's a status symbol. That's what we all ascribe to be. He's got everything that we want. He's got the beachside property. He's got all the resources that we would ever want, and yet here he is begging. Second, it's an unthinkable act because he leaves his son on his deathbed to go on a 25-mile journey to beg. If you've ever experienced loss in your life, is that the moment you leave? It's usually the moment we're trying to get on the red eye and get on the Greyhound because all the tickets are sold out. We're trying to get the Uber. We're trying to get the rent-a-car. We're trying to get the bird scooter, the skateboard, whatever we got to do to go and get to our loved one. And this guy leaves his son for a journey in hopes that this rabbi has something to offer. I couldn't do it. It's the reverse order of burying people. It's the father thinking about, I'm supposed to bury my son, but he's actually supposed to bury me. I just watched that in my family just a year and a half ago. I can't erase that from my memory. To see my parents look at my sister's corpse and say, this is not how it's supposed to be. You want every last moment with that person. Oh, just one more breath that we could have together. One more smile. One more glimpse of hope. One more last goodbye to tell them how much I love them and how much impact they have on me and how I wish we could right all wrongs and make things better. And here we are. You don't leave. You don't leave. You lean in. And yet this father at his end leaves to go and beg an unthinkable act. And third, a smaller point, but culturally, that would have been an unthinkable act as well. An official fraternizing with a rabbi just doesn't happen. To the Jewish mind, this guy is worse off than the Gentile, a people cut off from God's grace. So for him to beg to this rabbi, this Jewish rabbi, in front of these crowds of people, To the audience, they would say, he deserves none of this grace. He deserves none of what he's asking for. You owe this man nothing. Yet a man of authority, a man of means, humbles himself to plead on behalf of his son. A 25-mile journey to beg to an obscure rabbi who's growing in fame. Do you see it? Can you feel it? Jesus gives a reply, and it's not the reply that he longs for. Verse 48. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. He addresses the audience, 
See, the man wants to be seen and he's begging, but Jesus gives a mini sermonette and the man begging is like, that's not what I asked for. See, unless you believe, and that's where life comes from, but you just want to see signs, people. You just want to see the spectacle and the show and there's no good in that. And, and the man begging saying, could you just come with me? My son's on his deathbed. Would you just be willing to come? Jesus, I don't need a sermon right now. I, I need you to come with me. I, I need you to heal me like right now. The fact that I left, I don't even know if my son's going to be alive when I get back. I don't long for that message, Jesus. But he's revealing God's heart. There's a greater purpose at work that even underneath this message that Jesus is trying to teach the audience and to us today. You came for the show, but I'm telling you, the show is here. This, the logos, the word became flesh and is dwelling among you. The Messiah that you waited for is right here. Yeah, I can turn water to wine. It's a fun party trick. Yeah, I can cast out demons. Yeah, because I have control over everything. You see that sign, but I want you to see me. Well, the official doubles down. Verse 49. Hey, Jesus, great message, but sir, come down before my child dies. Sir, I'm begging you. And this word sir is a beautiful word. It's kyrios in Greek. It's where we get the word Lord from. It's a sign of respect. It's a, a title of honor. It's given to one that has more authority than you. So up the, the, the chain of command, it's sir, yes, sir. And this man of authority and means now recognizes a man with greater authority and means and says, sir, rightly so, you with all authority, you with the words of life, you where I'm placing my hope and confidence in that you'll come with me. Please Come and heal my son. And Jesus doesn't reply in the way that he anticipates. Jesus replies, verse 50, Go, your son will live. Quite literally translated, go, your son lives. There's no promise of healing in what Jesus says just off of reading it. Essentially, it could be translated, go away. Your son's probably still alive. Go spend your last days with him. No fanfare, no spectacle, just a command and a promise. That's how the man hears it. That's how the official hears it. Because he goes, and it says at the end of verse 50, the man took Jesus at his word and departed. Some translations might say he believed. Whatever was said, sometimes what's spoken is only half of it. It's the verbal, it's the, the tone. I've learned that in marriage, that my tone can change the way the, what I said. That's not what I said, but the way you heard it, okay, we've got to work on that. Whatever was said... This man of authority receives authority, an authoritative command from the Lord. And he believes 
and he leaves from a bended knee of begging to on his way back home, full of hope and faith that his son is made well. And he believes so much that we'll find out that he doesn't just go home right away. But a full day transpires from the time that he meets with Jesus to the time that he's returning home. Again, I don't know about you, but if I just met with Jesus and it's my last-ditch effort, I'm running home as quick as I can. And if you're a man of means, you're, you're running horses back then. You're doing whatever you can. You're hitching a ride. You're getting there as fast as you can. And yet there's so much confidence in what this man of authority has heard from Jesus that he leaves full of faith. In verse 51, we see that while he was still on his way, his servants meet him with news. What was that journey like? Was he full of faith and confidence that, man, I just met with Jesus, my son's going to be okay? Or was it maybe what my faith looks like sometimes is, I believe, I'm doubting. I believe, I'm scared. I'm believed, I'm confused. Should I have left my son? Was that the best idea? Is Jesus really who he said he was and he can make my son well? I can't get in contact with anybody at home. No cell phones, no email, no social media. I have no idea what's going on. But I'm all out of ideas. And this is it. And he's walking and he sees the servants from afar. I can only imagine for me, my heart would drop. Where are my servants coming to me right now? I'm bracing for impact personally. This isn't going to be good. I knew I shouldn't have left. Jesus, just this weird rabbi from Nazareth. (sighs) Blew it. Those last moments and memories, I should have been at my son's bedside. And yet the opposite happens. They come with news that his boy was living. His boy is living. In verse 52, when he inquired about the time when his son got better, they said the fever left him. This is how we know he was gone for a day. It left him yesterday at the seventh hour. The seventh hour, about 1 o'clock, 1 p.m. And probably the reason he doesn't run home is that it's not likely that you would travel at peak heat. And if you waited for the sun to cool, then it's probably an arduous journey at night to try and get back to his son. So maybe circumstantially it delays him, or perhaps it's faith. He believes. Either way, at the exact moment that Jesus says, go, your son will live, his son is made well. That's how he's, there's no clock. He's just mindful, it's peak hour, and that's when I was with Jesus. And Jesus has healed my son. In verse 53, when the father realized that that was the same exact time that he was with Jesus, who said, your son will live, and so he and all his house believed. The beautiful part about belief right here is it's not, it's contrasting the belief that was, I believed as he said, go, my son will live. I believed in the miracle that was going to happen. I believed in the sign that was going to happen. No, it's now shifted to, I believe, just as the Samaritans did a few verses earlier, that he's the son of God, that he's the living God. 
that he's who he says he was. And this healing that is documented has a greater purpose of just one person being healed, but that all in the household would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. What's beautiful about this act of Jesus is that, again, no fanfare, no crowd. There's no examination of this son. There's no incantation from Jesus. It's simply a command with a promise. Go and he'll live. And it's such an intimate act of healing that Jesus does. It's so relational and intimate. I don't know if you picked up on that. But to an obscure boy 25 miles away on a coastal town northwest of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus sees this boy. He knows this boy. He knows locationally where he's at. He knows what's ailing the son and the remedy to heal him without so much as seeing him or touching him physically. But with surgical precision, he brings healing to this boy. It's a beautiful expression of the God who became flesh, dwelling among his creation, bringing life and light to men. And this is the second sign to show that Jesus is the Messiah and there's life in his name. As we wrap this account, just a few observations for us as we'll continue in a time of worship through song in a few moments. And the first is this, is that the official's story and testimony highlights what all of us at some point will come to is that no matter how self-reliant we'd like to be, something will hit our lives where we see that we're actually in need and broken. For me, it was as an 18-year-old boy in the shower by myself where Jesus meets me, and I break down and say, Jesus, I need you. I've tried my way of living, and it doesn't work. I was on the road to be this famous recording artist with record contracts in L.A., and I thought that was going to be my life. And yet, the L.A. lifestyle quite literally was killing this teenage Dominic. And Jesus met me, and he saw me, and he offered a different way. And I recognized my need. Sometimes the gift of disorientation and chaos will come in our lives to reveal our need. And the good news is this, is that Jesus is available and accessible just as he was to this boy on his knees in the shower. He's available and accessible. You can come to him at any time. And the invitation is come and see. Come and walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. The second is this, is that it's very simple, but it's profound. Had the official not taken the step of faith to leave his dying son's bedside to go and meet with Jesus... There's no healing for his son. We would not be talking about this son 2,000 years later. He would just be another boy that's passed away far too prematurely. But the step of faith is commendable and one to take notice of. 
And for some of us, we've never taken that step of faith towards Jesus in this room or online. And the invitation is to come and see and take that step of faith, to see that he's the Messiah, the one who saves, and there's life in his name. And there's hope and healing and rescue in him. It doesn't mean a life of free from pain, but it means the promise that he'll be with you. For others, we've trusted him with our lives and we've walked with him for lengths of time, some longer than I've been alive. And he may be calling you to something to take that next step of faith. And with trepidation and resistance, we may be going, not that Jesus. And the invitation today is to come and take that step. To risk and to trust that he's good. The third is this, is that he's a promise keeper. He's true to his word. And what he says has weight and authority in our lives. And you can take him at his word. If you're like me, my faith vacillates. Again, faith, doubt, faith, doubt. Is he really as good as he says he was? I know he cares about me, but does he care that much? I know his love is big, but is it that big that it would reach to the lowest depths of my life and say, is that it? Oh, I've covered that. Oh, I've paid for that. You'll never exhaust the height or width or depth of my love, Dominic. Sikos, you'll never exhaust his care and compassion for you. He's right there with you. And his promise is promise of life. His promises are yes and amen. His promise is that it's finished. So if he says it's finished, it's finished. His promise is that you're new. So if he says you're new, you're new. So we can trust him at his word. And we can take him at his promises. As I've been wrestling with faith in my own life, I was on the phone with a mentor a few weeks ago. And he shared this line with me. I don't know if it fits in the sermon, but it's so good, I just have to share it with everybody. And as we reflected on my life and where I'm at and where I hope to be and the things in our family and as we're processing so much different things, he said, Dominic, if it doesn't glisten with hope, it's a lie from the devil. If it doesn't glisten and shine and shimmer with hope in your life, it's a lie from the devil. See, he's a promise keeper and promise maker, and if he says life and light are in his name, then you, being despondent and without hope, is not the voice of the Father, is not the plan for the Father in your life. As you risk and take a step, as you come to him and listen to him, as you take him at his word, if it doesn't glisten and glimmer with hope, it's not his word. Again, not free from pain, not free from the realities of life, but hope steadfast hope in him. And finally, the obedience of the official is commendable. At a command of go with the promise of he lives. It not only produces belief in him to come to the realization that he just encountered the Son of God, the Messiah, but the ripple effect of his whole household changes. The trajectory of his family tree changes. 
the biggest thing that they talk about is not that his son lives, but that he just met with the one who made his son live. And there's belief in his name, and there's life in his name. Can you imagine the impact that an official, the functional king of Herod in Capernaum has on faith spreading in that town? The one that everyone looks to says, it's not about me, it's him. Just as the forerunner, John the Baptist did, it's about him. I met with him, and I'm not worthy to tie his handles. The same is true for you. I'm blessed by many of you and the ripple effects of obedience that have followed in your life. I hope that in some way that as I've tried to serve you as best as I can these last years, that there's ripple effects of my obedience that inform your obedience that inform greater belief, and we get to do that together as a family of God. So come to him. Trust in him. Take a step of faith with him. And what he calls you to do, obey. And let's see how God transforms our world. Amen? I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to sing. And as I was thinking about this message this morning, one command that I want to just draw our attention to A command and a promise is this. Go and make disciples of all nations. The imperative isn't go. The imperative is make disciples. As you live, work, and play, invite people to walk with you, work with you. Watch how you do it and express the kingdom of God. And God's promise is that he'll never leave you or me or forsake us, that he'll be with us always. It's the greatest work that you can commit your life to. And I challenge you to take a step of faith to begin making disciples who make disciples who make disciples so that generations from now will still be talking about this Jesus of Nazareth. What good could come from Nazareth? The good that comes is he's the Messiah and in him there's life in his name. And so let's sing of the life that he has. Let's respond and express our gratitude to him this morning.